Welcome to Songcraft. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is the show that brings you in-depth conversations with the creators of great songs, from the ones you know and love to the ones you should know. Be sure to subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit us at songcraftshow.com. You're listening to Oh Gravity, recorded by Switchfoot and co-written by the group's frontman and primary songwriter, John Foreman, who is our guest on this episode of Songcraft. Switchfoot has released nine studio albums, including 2003's The Beautiful Letdown, which sold more than two and a half million copies, earning it double platinum status. Their last six albums have hit the top 20 on the Billboard 200 album chart, with five of them going to number one on the Billboard Christian Albums chart. With RIAA-certified gold-selling singles Meant to Live, Dare You to Move, and Stars, Switchfoot has won 14 Dove Awards, including Artist of the Year, which they took home in 2005. They won a Grammy for Best Rock Gospel Album in 2010 for their Hello Hurricane LP. Foreman has released two albums with Nickel Creek's Sean Watkins under the name Fiction Family, as well as two thematic series of critically acclaimed solo EPs. His songs have been covered by Mandy Moore, Taylor Swift, Mute Math, Meatloaf, Amy Grant, and others. In 2001, Foreman was honored with the Les Paul Horizon Award as the most promising up-and-coming guitarist at the annual Gibson Guitar Awards in Los Angeles. He is an avid surfer and a contributor to the Huffington Post, where he blogs about life, music, and culture. You know, in my early days of writing songs, one of my biggest fears was that one day I would run out of songs. Right. Just a songwriter has so many songs in him, and then one day you're just out. Yeah. I think John Foreman is evidence that that is not the case. (laughs) Because this guy, through Switchfoot, through all the side projects, and, and particularly these solo albums that come, you know, one after the other... He just keeps writing and writing and writing. It, it's like a muscle that gets stronger the more you use it. Yeah. No, I think you're right. It, it's it, Songwriting isn't like a, a well that uh, only has so much depth to it, and at some point it's just going to run out. I think you're right. It's it's one of those things that um, if you're, you're not using it, um, it, it can lie dormant. And I think, you know, you and I are probably a good – uh, example of that because you are somebody who writes quite a bit. I am somebody who was a professional songwriter and, and don't really write much anymore. And I find myself getting less and less ideas for songs right. precisely because I'm not doing it as much, not just because it, it ran out. Right. But if you pick that thing back up and started working it, you yeah, know, I'm sure the songs would start to come again. I would advise you not do that because it's a drug And then you'll find yourself ignoring your wife and not spending any time at home because you're running around trying to make things rhyme. Right, right. That uh, that's that's an occupational hazard. John Foreman, of course, not only spends all this time writing songs and thinking up projects, but then he's out there surfing at the same time, which I know is is an addictive hobby as well from friends of mine that do it. I never had any success at surfing myself. I tried surfing one time. I got up on the board for what felt like a minute. I think it was probably more like two seconds. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I think that John Foreman uh, as a surfer and as a rock star uh, can be said to be much cooler than we are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that's probably a truism. Yeah, I, I think, think I'll back fair. you up on that. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's go to the coolest man in the room then and hear what he has to say about songwriting and surfing. Let's do it. John, welcome to Songcraft. Hi. Really glad to have you here with us today, man. Um, I wanted to start off by getting your reaction to a quote by a fellow songwriter and another guy who shares uh, a passion for surfing like you do. It's a quote from Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam uh, from their short film promoting the album Lightning Bolt. And here's what he had to say. Surfing is pretty easy once you're on the wave, and so is songwriting once you're on the wave. But you can spend a lot of days out there paddling around and not getting anything. Um, As a fellow surfer and songwriter, do you resonate with his description of that process? Um, Yeah, I could see you. I could think I know where he's going with that. Um, It's funny, actually, Eddie Vedder... He went to my high school. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah, so when I was in high school, there was always, like, this rumored performance that Pearl Jam was going to show up and play at lunch or something. That <laughs> never happened, but right, right. That, was the, that was the rumor. That's, um, that's a good reason to come to school, though. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, I do think that songwriting and surfing have a little bit of that in common. 
where there's an element that's outside of your control hmm. and you're interfacing with something that's more powerful than you are and you are trying to harness a power that does not originate with yourself. Wow. Um, hmm. So I, I think when when you're surfing, it's a really humbling thing to paddle out, especially on a big day, and just realize how small you are in the face of the Pacific <laughs> yeah. or wherever, whatever ocean you are, you know, um, to be held down for, you know, even half a minute and realize that you can't get to the surface even if you wanted to, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> and I, I think there's a beauty in that too, though. I think that it, there's a terrifying beauty in the realization that you are not in control. Mm. And I think that w- with songwriting, um, you could call it transcendence, you could call it um, a divinity, trying to access this, this other element. Um, you could call it a muse. You know, for me as a believer, I look at like the Judeo-Christian tradition of in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You've got this idea that God is kind of speaking things into existence, saying, let there be, and there was. Right. And it's a really poetic way of, of saying, kind of, God wrote the world like a song, you know? Yeah, and that's cool. hmm. I feel like with when you're songwriting, that's, that's what you're trying to tap into, is, is creating. You're creating a world. You're speaking something in, into existence, singing it into existence. And you mentioned having gone to the same high school as Eddie Vedder there in San Diego, and and Switchfoot is a band that is very much associated with San Diego. And, you know, some folks might think of of Southern California as a homogenous place, but in your view, what are kind of the differences of being a San Diego band versus a, a Los Angeles band? And how does that sense of place inform your creative identity? Yeah, you know, maybe these idiosyncrasies are becoming less and less noticeable, but um, you know, when we first started back in the 1900s, (laughs) the differences were more profound. (laughs) And um, one of those differences was the idea that San Diego was was far enough removed from the hype and the, the record deals up in L.A. You know, it felt like when you go up to L.A., there was this kind of cutthroat hmm. mentality right. where people are going for, you know, everyone's there for a reason. They want to get signed. They want to get discovered. A lot of people have moved there. Sure. They're really chasing chasing down a dream, you know, whereas San Diego was kind of, you know, mo- pretty much all of my heroes in the San Diego music scene had had a day job. Hmm. And, right. And there was no thought of like, oh, this is this is my salvation. This is gonna get me out of flipping burgers, you know. <laughs> right. It was like, no, this is just something I do for fun because I think it's uh, the best release I'll mm. ever find. Yeah. And I think that 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 creates a camaraderie that that kind of formed us as a band, you know. Well, you know, when you formed that band back in '96 with Chad Butler on drums and your brother Tim on bass, what what was your songwriting process like in those early days before you signed your deal and you were just kind of an early band? Yeah, so I always joke that, you know, my brother and I, we started as a Led Zeppelin cover band in junior high. Right. And then my, the joke is that when your voice starts to change, you have to r- start writing your own songs because you can't hit <laughs> Led Zeppelin high notes anymore. Are you like a Crash Test Dummies <laughs> cover band after that? Yeah, kind of, right? Or you shift, you start down-tuning, or yeah. what do you do, you know? Right. But, I mean, I think that's the beauty of songwriting is that you don't really know what you're doing, and there's... There's something beautiful about that. And it's the same with surfing in that there's no one out there with a rule book. You don't have to take a driving course or something. You know, you're not hurting anyone by writing a bad song. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Or writing it wrong or something. There's no rule book. So the thing that remains the same is what do you want to say? And and then what rules do you want to break? And I think especially early on, there's this, I think it's in pottery, they call it, um, the Japanese have a term, wabi, I think mm. it's called wabi, and it's it's a term for a novice potter, and um, the idea that when 
this novice throws their first pot, there's something beautifully wrong about it. Hmm. You know, I, I feel the same same way about hearing, you know, early songwriters starting off. Some yeah. of my friends, you know, some of those early songs that they write are so wrong in all the right <laughs> ways, you <laughs> know? Cool. Right, right. <laughs> they don't know what they're doing. Right. Yeah, yeah. You I couldn't do it again sure. 20 years from now. Well, you know, Charlie Peacock is a name that might not be familiar to everyone, but he co-wrote Amy Grant's big hit, Every Heartbeat, and produced both of the uh, Civil Wars records, including Barton Hollow, which won a Grammy for Best Folk Album in 2012. And I understand that Charlie had an important role in Switchfoot's early success. Um, talk about how you guys hooked up with him and, and what he did for your career early on. He got a cassette tape back when those were a thing (laughs) (laughs) and it was kind of passed around given from a friend or a friend to a friend and this this was back when my brother was still in high school we tracked it on my four track before it caught on fire (laughs) and it was yeah like those are those are the days yeah you can picture like stage coaches like crossing (laughs) to the west or something (laughs) um and he he heard it and he really somehow heard something in there. I mean, it was the weirdest, worst, strangest stuff, but he really found something in there and flew out and wanted to sign us to his record company. Wow. And this was at a point where we, you know, we, I, we had just started this particular band. We'd been in bands all through high school and college and everything, but this was, kind of, I was a freshman in college and I was, this was a brand new band, not even thinking about getting signed. Yeah. And Charlie kind of took us under his wing and saw something in us and and fought for us hmm. and, uh, you know, took us to Europe on tour. And um, the first three records, you know, produced them at at his place, and, or at least the second two. I think we did the first one here while we were on Christmas break because we were all still in school. My brother was still <laughs> in high school. Wow. <laughs> wow. So, and then, yeah, but like the, literally the week after Tim graduated, we were on tour in Europe, and but the goal was always okay. Well, we're gonna, of course, we're gonna finish college. Yeah, sure. this is crazy. We're we're playing <laughs> yeah. rock and roll. This is <laughs> we're getting away with something, but it, <laughs> it can't last forever. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, your second album, uh, New Way to Be Human, featured Sooner or Later, which was inspired by Soren Kierkegaard, as well as Something More, which is about Saint Augustine. Kierkegaard and, and Augustine make for some heavy source material for a, for a young three-piece rock band. And uh, I'm curious how much your own personal reading, whether it be philosophy or religious texts or, or novels or whatever, how much does that influence your songwriting? I think, for me, I find inspiration in, in thinking that people have wrestled with the same questions that I have. Mm. Not just within my time, but you know, generations ago. And so whether it's Kierkegaard or, you know, Dostoevsky or Tolstoy or whoever, you know, to to read back through Nietzsche and and find truth and say, oh, wow, this actually pertains to the world I live in maybe more than he would ever know. Um, I think that's, that's pretty phenomenal, you know. And so a lot of times um, this, the song is found in the continuity between what it meant to be human a thousand years ago and what it means to be human now. And wow. There's this common thread that feels like that's where the song comes in. And, yeah. and, you know, I mean, when you're writing a song, rarely are you looking for something disposable. You're looking for the stuff that's going to be around yeah. a thousand years from now, you know. So that's kind of, it feels like you've struck gold. Yeah. Well, yeah, because when you do that and you, you write that song and make that album, then you're participating in the conversation you know you're not just drawing from it but you're you're adding your voice to that same conversation um you guys continue to do that and your third album learning to breathe is where things really kind of began to break through um earned you guys your first grammy nomination for best rock gospel album and soon after a handful of your songs appeared on the soundtrack for the mandy moore film a walk to remember 
Um, in fact, Mandy sang one of your songs, Only Hope, in the film. So I laid my head back down And I lift my hands and pray To be only yours, I pray To be only yours, I know now You're my curious as a songwriter talk a little bit about the experience of hearing someone else's voice bring your lyrics to life yeah that's a phenomenal feeling i think i'm i'm kind of a singer by default Hmm. not because i like being even being in front of people i'm i had to learn how to figure out how to perform these songs i was used to be kind of painfully awkward in front of people i still am awkward but maybe not painfully so (laughs) (laughs) and and the idea that like yes life is awkward I am awkward. I humanity is awkward. <laughs> right. Let's have a good time. You know? <laughs> um, and but to hear somebody else sing them, um, that was all. That kind of was a dream, you know. Being a three piece, I was a singer just because no one else wanted to sing. So to be able to have Mandy Moore sing the song, or you know, hearing them on American Idol or The Voice or whoever, Meatloaf covered one of our songs. Um, <laughs> Cypress Hill did a remix with us. Uh, these are things that, for me, are like those are those are highlights to hear somebody else uh, sing sing these lyrics. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, another voice that has brought one of your songs to life is uh, Taylor Swift, who uh, apparently is quite popular, as I understand, <laughs> with um, the kids. <laughs> and she uh, she's performed "Dare You to Move" uh, in concert, and and that's another of your songs that was on the Walk to Remember soundtrack, but kind of found a, a second life when you guys signed with uh, Columbia Records for your fourth album and, and reworked the song and released it as a as a single that hit the top twenty on the Billboard Pop Chart. Dare you to Dare You to Move won two Dove Awards and, and became a, a signature song for, for Switchfoot. Uh, tell us a bit about the inspiration for that one. Yeah, so that song was written during a time when kind of a pivotal moment, you know, where you're like trying to decide, should I quit music, quit playing shows, you know, or should I quit going to college altogether? Mm. And um, for me... I feel like I write about tension a lot. I write about the dissonance. I write about the things I don't understand. Mm. And that song, I think, encapsulates that in a, in a kind of a very honest way. Where, yeah. I mean, the second verse talks about the tension is here um, between who you are and who you could be, between what the world is and how it should be. You know, and right. Those are the things that keep me up at night, and I think in many ways that's why I write songs, um, because songwriting becomes this honest place to talk about things that I can't talk about with anyone. I have a hard time talking about them with my counselor or close friends, you know, but somehow in a song, you can sing these lyrics in front of thousands of people, and, and it feels honest, and it feels... It feels like you're not holding anything back, but you feel like it's an appropriate place for that kind of release. Wow. And um, so, yeah, so that for me, "Dare to Move" is written about about that tension. Yeah. Um, I mean, just to dive deeper into that, I've always said songwriting is like archaeology, where you pick up your guitar and you just start digging. And mm-hmm. sometimes you're digging in the soil of your own pain or frustration or joy, or you know, maybe you're digging in the front pages, but the good songs are the ones that feel like you just dug something up wow. and yeah. it, it comes up intact. You didn't actually write anything. You just discovered it. Huh. That's cool. Yeah. I like that image a lot. Um, you know, l- looking at, at dare you to move. Um, I mean that, that song was included on the 2003 beautiful letdown album. 
and was just one of the, one of the massive songs on that record. I mean, more than half the tracks on that album were released as singles, including another one of your top 20 pop hits, Meant to Live. album was certified double platinum, got album of the year at the San Diego Music Awards, and it was ranked in Billboard's list of the hot 200 albums of the decade. Um, I mean, so talking about big time success here, I, it sounds like th- the question was answered, <laughs> whether to keep being in a band or whether to go back to college. <laughs> right. or, you know, once and for all, that question was answered. But did having that kind of success put a new kind of pressure on you in terms of your approach to writing songs going forward to that point? I mean, at one point you're, you're in a band, like you said, doing it because you loved it and it felt like a release and then you're writing about the tension, but then at a certain point, maybe does songwriting become the tension? Hmm. Yeah, there is a real, I mean, I think you're hitting at a real, um, genuine problem, um, that I see, I see it all the time with, uh, pro surfers friends of mine that you know we all grew up surfing because we love it and then suddenly you got to start getting results on tour and that's how you're bringing home rent money you know like it's no longer this joyful thing that you just paddle out and express yourself and could care less um so i think the the question then becomes where do you find release you know how do you negotiate that i think for me the the place I've come to is by finding that same release in uh, side projects. Mm, yeah. And not everyone is as fortunate, I, but I, I I have a band that's, you know, Tim and Chad and the rest of Drew and Jerome, they've been incredibly supportive and saying, no, you need to release all these songs. So I've had, been able to put out the solo projects. The, those feel like um, they continue that pastime of, for the pure joy of music. And I think that allows me to be a better songwriter, even within Switchfoot, because it, it takes the pressure out of it all, you know? Well, your next album, nothing is sound debuted at number three on the billboard album charts and was certified gold, but you know, it got bogged down in, in some controversy when it was discovered that Sony had included some overreaching copy protection on the CD to keep people from ripping it. And these were the the peak days of of illegal file sharing, and and record labels were kind of flailing to find a way to to try to stop the bleeding. And I think a lot of mistakes were probably made by the labels, and I know that you guys were pretty upset about it at that time. But, you know, looking back from the vantage point of of 10 years now and and knowing what we know now about how much the music industry has changed since then, um, what are your thoughts at this point on kind of what Sony was trying to do, um, you know, as someone who is both a, a creative person, but who also makes a living from a business that has seen some dramatic declines in the ability for songwriters to make much money on mechanical royalties from album sales. Hmm. Yeah, it's funny because we've, the only record we actually um, really made money off of was uh, The Beautiful Letdown. Hmm. All the others were kind of like um, t-shirt sales and tickets, yeah, you know, especially right. the first first year. And then ever since then was kind of where music is headed. And, you know, you can lament about, you know, where where music was and how it should be this. And record stores are great. And shouldn't we have more of them? And, you know, I, I listened with my daughter this morning. We listened to Bob Marley and Mary Poppins. So, <laughs> you know, she picks, picks a playlist. Nice. And I love vinyl, and I love listening to it with her. And, but it's not for me to dictate what other people do with their music, you know. And right. um, Spotify and all these other worlds of music—they're—they're um, they're incredible for what they offer um, the public, you know. And and to say no, you should or shouldn't—I don't think I'm going to win that. Hmm. Um, first of all, and I'd—I'd I'd rather people listen to music how they wanted to listen to it, and we're always going to be changing as technology changes. And the, the beautiful thing as a songwriter is that you are a part of a much 
much deeper tradition than recorded music. Yeah. You are a part of a tradition that goes back to the, the foundations of what it means to be mm. human, the True. dawn of man. You know, music, in many ways, is, is an older form of communication than than even prose, you know. And yeah. so with that, I don't get bogged down on how things change. I mean, we've yeah. had the privilege of being around for seeing the cassette, t- the cassette tape all the way through yeah. Spotify yeah. and... A good song remains a good song, you know, yeah. and that's the beauty of it. Sure. Well, you know, talking about that Nothing Is Sound record, uh, you know, the biggest single off that album was Stars, which was a hit on Billboard's Modern Rock chart. By this point, the band had grown. You started off just as a three-piece, but you kind of became a five-piece with the keyboards and an additional guitarist. And then recording budgets were bigger now, and you guys recording to a major label. In what ways did having the additional instrumentation and some more kind of studio bells and whistles, in what ways did that influence your, your writing process? Um, that's a good question. I mean, if you have... A distortion pedal, you're going to use it. <laughs> you know, um, to, to man with a hammer, all the world's a nail, right? <laughs> and so I think when when you have these other things in your pocket, especially when they're fresh and new, you're excited about them. And we, I think Beautiful Letdown kind of hinted at that, but I think that Nothing Sound was kind of the full expression of that concept of expressing yourself with kind of all five of us making music. Mm, and, yeah. um, I definitely, I love having Drew and Jerome and their input on on that album. Yeah, yeah. Well, you guys made another record, Oh Gravity, for Columbia before then releasing your seventh studio album, Hello Hurricane, on your own Lowercase People label, which is distributed by Atlantic. And you guys did quite a few late-night TV appearances in support of that record, including Jimmy Kimmel, Conan O'Brien, Jimmy Fallon, Jay Leno, you know, made the full rounds. Um, But that album also won a Grammy for Best Rock Gospel Album. And you guys have been unusually successful at appealing to both Christian and mainstream audiences. And it, it kind of made me think of you know, Bob Dylan, who released three Christian albums in the late 70s and early 80s and suddenly found himself pulled between what his old fans expected him to represent and what his new fans sort of projected onto him in terms of what they wanted him to be. Um, And so recognizing that Christianity itself is about personal faith, there's also this whole other thing called the you know, quote unquote, Christian market that can have some pretty high expectations of its heroes. Talk a little bit about the dichotomy of the mainstream and Christian markets and how you as an artistic person manage some of those expectations that others might put on you. There's some, that's a a layered cake of a question right there. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, rock and roll two things before it in the phrase are sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yeah. And then it's usually not like abstinence, church, and rock and roll, or whatever. <laughs> I don't know what that correlates. Yeah, um, yeah and, but then the funny thing is, you know, growing up in a time where that is the standard to actually say, no, um, we want to do things different, actually becomes the iconoclastic response um everyone's wearing a ramon shirt that they bought at all um what do you do you know what is how do you rebel you <laughs> probably don't choose punk rock um so for us um the fortunate thing i think tying it back to san diego we grew up in a world where we didn't really know about nashville and the idea that there was a genre called christian music right. you know we we would play at frat parties and bars, and, and then we'd play at 
you know, on, on Sunday we'd play at church, and we didn't really see a big difference, you know. Um, yeah. Certainly there was different behavior at both of them, but <laughs> right. a lot of times the same people. And I think for me, I've always just thought of people as people. I don't see a big delineation. I don't think it's my job to decide who goes to heaven. You know, I think realistically, I feel like I'm very aware of my own flaws and that keeps me busy enough than mm. worrying about what somebody else is doing, you know? Yeah. Um, and as far as songwriting is concerned, I'm always just trying to tell the truth in that own, that my own struggle, you know, and the, the irony is the, the personal struggle that I, that I go through of trying to make sense of why I'm here on the planet and, and what life means and how to live it well. It, a lot of times those real intimate questions end up being the universal ones too. Mm. Huh. We're the first to admit we don't have it figured out. So mm. with that, with that said, let's, let's play some music. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, th- there was something that you just said earlier and, and the, the connection got a little funny for a second. So I just want to repeat it cause I thought it was so good. You said, when everybody's buying a Ramones t-shirt at the mall, how do you rebel? Yeah. <laughs> that's a, that's, that's a, a pretty good nugget of, of yeah, totally. current culture wisdom right there. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think about that all the time, and not in terms of songwriting, but like sonic quality, like when Katy Perry and Miley Cyrus and all these people have like guitars that sound like the Foo Fighters on them, like what do you do as a rock band? Right. Hmm. You know? Totally. Like, you, you have to find a new way to express yourself that doesn't feel like you're listening to pop radio. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I want to ask you about the song The Sound, John M. Perkins Blues from Hello Hurricane. That was your first top 10 single on the modern rock chart since Dare You to Move. And I'm curious about who John Perkins is and what prompted you to write that song. Yeah, so John Perkins is, among many things, a civil rights leader who uh, chose a peaceful response to racism and oppression. And I was reading his book while we were making that record, and it felt like you know, you're always looking for a good story to tell, and it felt like that was a story I'd never heard before, mm. you know. Um, Malcolm X and, and, you know, Martin Luther King Jr., you've got these stories that are incredibly compelling that you've read in, in textbooks. Um, but here was a story that I'd never heard that was equally deserving of being told. So I, I felt like he expressed what I was trying to say with his life you know he embodied it Hmm. which is to say that uh, love alone can end the the cycle of hatred you know war gives birth to war uh, anger gives birth to anger and and these cycles continue but love is actually a a stop it's a full stop where it becomes um it's on almost an unassailable response hmm. to racism or oppression or anything like that. And so I, I thought, man, I got, we got to sing that song. Wow. And so that's, that's how that song was written. Well, you mentioned earlier, you know, having certain side projects that are kind of an outlet for you. And by the time Hello Hurricane came out, you had, had branched out into some of those side projects, including Fiction Family, which you formed with Sean Watkins, who's best known as the guitarist in Nickel Creek. Talk about what sides of your creative spirit a project like that allows you to explore um, that might be outside the bounds of what you would do with Switchfoot. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I'm a, I'm a firm believer that all of us have 
many, many layers of who we are, and they are unlocked by the uh, environment that we're in, Hmm. you know, Um, which is to say, who would Dave Grohl be if he grew up a thousand years ago? Hmm. Um, Certainly Bach is a genius, but what would he do with the guitar, you know? He'd probably be incredible. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And so, like... For me, I, I I just love music. I'm I'm like when I was a kid, I would my I, my parents took me to Disneyland and and um, they they lost me, um, oh. and I was I was they found me chasing after the the marching band, like pretending I was in the <laughs> band, like marching along, <laughs> and that describes like me. I'm like okay, I'm in the band. That's it. <laughs> right. And so when I met Sean, I was just struck by not only who he is as a person um but his playing it felt like it opened up a whole new understanding of music to me um uh bluegrass and and all these you know a whole world of music that's truly american music that i had never really dove into yeah yeah and so writing songs with sean felt like we were we were finding you know kind of this new this new ocean that had, had, you know, maybe it's always existed, but I'd never seen it before. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, you, you've also undertaken some ambitious solo projects, including a series of four EPs, fall, winter, spring, and summer. Is that a project that you kind of had fully mapped out in your head before you started releasing them? Or did you kind of find yourself with some self-imposed deadlines to complete each of those? I'm, I'm really interested in how the process of something like that works. I mean, even... You know, are you a guy that sets out time to write, um, kind of just to, to motivate yourself, or do you start with this idea of a project and then write the songs as they come? Um, it, it, you know, it's like a little bit of both. Um, the fall, the, the seasons, like fall, winter, spring, summer, those EPs, um, some of the songs were actually written, you know, as as we were nearing the time that they needed to be released <laughs> you know where you're like okay springtime's coming it's gonna sound like spring we gotta write some songs right, right. and yeah so that that but i i think that there's something i think what was it duke ellington um somebody asked him what what he found where he found his inspiration and he set a deadline and wow. i think there's some truth in that you know yeah. like i I think that you can find inspiration anywhere um, in the, a baby's laugh or in the ocean or in the night sky, whatever it is. But sometimes you need to actually complete a project. You need the inspiration of a deadline to say, right. all right, papers, put your pens down, you know, right. <laughs> right. step away from the canvas, it's done. And <laughs> I, I, I love that. There's that element of, okay, like today, is the last day for us to finish album 10. It goes to mastering tomorrow. Really? Wow. So, yeah, and that's, that's a beautiful thing to be like, all right. Um, man, why are you talking about one guitar part? <laughs> <laughs> you got to get to work, yeah, man. You got to step away. You know? so, yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, it's, it's interesting to think that you, you know, you could undertake a project like, like the, the four seasonal EPs and, and you get, three seasons into it and you're like oh my god i've got to do another season but you have to you can't release the three and then say i'm done (laughs) yeah you're right and it's fun because my friend ryan o'neill um from sleeping at last he he's done projects like this and we've had every time one of us is undertaking it you know text messages back and forth and um good to know you're not the only crazy one you know <laughs> it was, yeah like maybe next time you're like i'm gonna do 12 separate eps months of the year and maybe he'll talk you out of that one because that sounds that <laughs> yeah sounds a little tough yeah totally <laughs> right well the thing is i i think for me the, the problem is not writing and finding something interesting the problem is like you don't want to overwhelm people with material mm. you know yeah so most of the songs i write no one's ever going to hear and it used to be that used to be super depressing to me hmm. And then I read this thing about Hemingway where he had this thing called the Iceberg Principle where he most of the stuff he wrote, no one's ever read. And his his theory is that's fine. That's 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 the part of the iceberg that no one sees, and that's the reason why the rest of it remains afloat. Wow. And 
and um, I love that because I, I, I feel like that's given me the ability to throw things away yeah. um, and not be such a musical pack rat. Hmm. You know, this is a good idea. Oh, this is a good bridge. Hold on to that one. It's like, well, if, it, if, you, if it's good, it's going to come back, you know. It's oh, going to yeah. come to the surface. That's mm. cool. Yeah. Well, uh, with Switchfoot, you released your eighth studio album, Vice Versus, in 2011, which debuted in the top ten on the Billboard album chart and featured the single Dark Horses, which went to number five on Billboard's Alternative Songs chart and spent seven straight weeks at number one on the Christian Rock Songs chart. Hey, kind of an anthem of resilience um tell us a bit about what that song means for you yeah i think um that one's you know that one's written for these kids in our hometown we do this event called the bro-am which is a um surf contest and concert on the beach that raises money and celebrates the lives of uh at-risk and homeless kids in our own backyard in san diego and you know over the years we've gotten the chance to meet a lot of them and and they're the most phenomenal people group on the planet. Just these kids that are 100% pure kids that want to dress and look like any other kid and don't want anyone really to know that the struggle that they go through, but they they are trying to graduate high school, trying to get a degree, trying to, you know, sort through puberty and, and life. Yeah. Um, pretty much all on their own yeah. and homeless. And, mm. you know, you think back to your own teenage years and how crazy those times were. I can't even imagine trying to do that on my own. Yeah. And yeah. so that that was an anthem that we wrote for them. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, 2013, Switchfoot uh, released yet another great album, Fading West, and at the same time, you're you're doing the band thing. You're you're putting out more uh, solo stuff, and um, one of my favorites of your solo material is Before Our Time, uh, which was the final song on another series of EPs you released last year called The Wonderlands. Parts in that EP series were Sunlight, Shadows, Darkness, and Dawn, designed to work as 24 songs for 24 hours, another ambitious undertaking. Um, talk a bit about what inspired that project for you. Yeah, so, you know, we were talking about songwriting as kind of co-signing God's blank checks. Right. Um, you've got this idea of singing a world into existence. I kind of wanted to take it literally and create a musical planet um, where you'd have a song for each hour of the day and using the metaphor of light and darkness to uh, kind of inspire the lyrical content and the production choices. Hmm. And so um, that's, that's, that's what those four EPs were Hmm. kind of uh, built around was that concept. And then the goal at the end, that we had when we first uh, kind of started dreaming this up was the idea of playing a 24-hour event where you would play <laughs> 20, 24, 20, we ended up being 27 or 25 or something, wow. um, different concerts wow. all around San Diego. Where So all these different shows in 24 hours. So we played a wedding, we played... Um, this outdoor amphitheater with a pipe organ. We played a <laughs> wow, restaurant. We played at the beach, and we played my old alma mater, my high school, with the, with the school band there. You know, it's just different musicians at every location. Pearl Jam and, never um, came, but you guys did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Let it, let it, let it be known. For Eddie to show up, he never showed up. (laughs) No, so that that was like the dream was like, how can we create that musical planet? You know, for for one day. Yeah, that's awesome. I love how you just set yourself these these challenges. (laughs) That's amazing. Um, yeah, and you are a really busy guy. I mean, I just I look at all this stuff, the, the Switchfoot stuff, the, the solo projects, uh, the Fiction Family stuff, and then on at the same time, you've had songs recorded by other artists, from Mute Math to Amy Grant. You mentioned Meatloaf. And, and here's an, uh, a question I've got on my mind: when, when you have like an idea, a, a song that's kind of forming, do you always know? Okay, this is a Switchfoot song, or this is a solo project song, or this is something that could be pitched in another direction. Or do they kind of become formed and then you decide, you know, what they're good for? Um, you know, usually I just I just write. And that the big the big conflict is with songwriting is um the moment you try and sell it, right? Because yeah. songwriting on its own, there's no conflict there. It's just this beautiful expression that maybe it's just between you and God and you there it is. You know, you got it out. And it's honest and it's pure. But the moment you say, Okay, well, how, what box am I going to put it in and what am I going to charge for it and how am I going to produce it and what, you know, those kind of questions, um, they can begin to mess with your head. Mm. Um, and so for me, I, I try not to think of any of that and just, just, just write. Yeah. And usually the, the first, I just plan for my brother and, and Switchfoot gets first pick of what, what songs they want, you know. And that's yeah. the joke is is Tim saying, oh, no, that's a great song. You should put it on your solo album. You know? <laughs> Backhanded compliment. Great, great song. Don't oh, put yeah. it on our record. That'd be yeah. great for film and TV. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. Yeah, give, give that one to Meatloaf, you know. <laughs> that's so, funny. No, it, it, it really is, like, it's hard to tell what is what, you know. Even vice versa, that was, I thought that was a solo song. Well, one more question and then we'll uh, let you go because now I'm really nervous about this being the last day that you have to finish your album. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, there's a, a moment in the Switchfoot documentary Fading West where uh, you guys are playing, I, I think it's like some kind of metal festival in Australia. Um, and I'm not sure if it was you or not because the voice is off screen but uh but one of you says we bring the songs we believe in to uncomfortable places because we believe that's where they need to be heard and you know your lyrics are are never heavy-handed or or preachy in any way but um do you think of what you do as a spiritual calling or or mission of some type um those get to be tricky waters um, <laughs> pretty quick. I, I, I think that every day we're alive is a holy, transcendent, incredible, eternal moment. You know, every breath. I think that the, the mistake or the lie, the illusion is that somehow it's normal. Death is normal. The, mm millions of years before you and the millions of years after you um that's that standard that the countless light years of empty space that do not have a human heartbeat that is standard but the incredibly precious you know five foot whatever that i occupy here on this planet today right now i feel like that is is something whether you want to call it holy or a mission or purpose filled or something you know i I definitely want to make it count Mm -hmm. and then for me with songwriting and music i feel like that is for whatever reason that is what makes me alive more than anything else um and so that i do think that it's a um whether you want to use spiritual language or not, it's it feels like it's an endeavor that has has some stakes, you know. Yeah. There's some risk and some reward that feels like it has more than just the temporal elements yeah. um, involved. That's and cool. I I think there's there is this thing, you know, we've discovered, especially as you get older, 
you know, you start and you're playing rock and roll and it's the best and you actually got paid to play music. And why wouldn't you want to do that um, mm. for the rest of your life? Yeah. And then suddenly you're in Germany playing for a couple hundred people and and you have a wife and a daughter at home and you, you question, okay, what is the purpose of this? Yeah. And what's the meaning, you know? For us as a band, we've had to ask that many times through the years and come to the conclusion that, you know, we sing uh, essentially because hope deserves an anthem. And that's why we feel, that's why I want to sing, that's what gets me up on a plane away from my family. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Hope deserves an anthem. Well, you're you're continuing to give it that anthem to give hope a voice and and now even with album number 10 which we're excited to hear yeah um thank you so much for taking time away in a really busy moment i'm really honored that you guys wanted to interview and if i could give any encouragement to to songwriters it would be that you know uh, write a lot of songs and be honest god doesn't need a lawyer <laughs> and your your job is only strengthened by honesty and and um intentionality in that you know and um then and you're you're also not crazy um Mm. keep going (laughs) that's awesome yeah well thanks so much man yeah thank you guys for your good questions and i hope to see you guys down the road sounds good we appreciate it Thank you for listening. To find out more about our guests, stream episodes, get a sneak peek at upcoming interviews, or to contact us with your feedback, visit songcraftshow.com. While you're there, sign up for our mailing list so you can stay up to date with everything that's happening in the Songcraft universe. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please like our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash songcraftshow. And if you enjoy what we're doing here at Songcraft, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review on iTunes, which truly helps potential listeners discover these conversations. And we look forward to getting together with you again for the next episode of Songcraft. 